Welcome to another free first hour episode of the Higher Side Chats. I know we want to get into the action, but I have to ask that you help me armor us up a bit for the bumpy road ahead. Because I bring you the first hour of this show without unrelated ad nonsense as a proof of concept. And if you value it, then come over to THC Plus for the $8 a month and hear the full two-hour interviews as they were designed to be and as you would enjoy them most. Go to thehiresidechats.com or just click the link in the show notes to get started and within a minute you'll be plugging in your new Plus Show RSS feed into a hopefully decentralized podcasting 2.0 supported app. Feed the things you want to grow and starve the things that gotta go and we will reach the promised land. Think about that and enjoy the show. In the 1930s, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt addressed the nation through a series of radio broadcasts known as the Fireside Chats. His aim was to reassure the common man that our society would recover from its troubled times. Well, we're far from 1930, and I deal with a different kind of fire. For a new era of worldly frustration, we offer a fresh conversation. I'm Greg Carlwood, and these are the Fireside Chats. Here we go, Ironside Chatters from sunny San Diego. I'm Greg Carlwood, and when you really bring together and digest the various views of our guests over the last 10 years and compare them to Western academia or even your average citizen, it's easy to forget how different some of our fundamental thoughts on reality really are. Things that sound almost too basic at this point, like consciousness is primary and we're all interconnected, and with a well-trained mind we can alter our reality and manifest our deepest desires. These are statements that many of us take for granted these days, but are comically still pretty radical for those we walk among. But when we can take an out-of-the-box idea and have it studied in a serious academic way, or take the best tools for determining what's supposed to be true in the world and have them professionally applied to aspects of the so-called paranormal by people with all the right qualifications, these things become hard to argue with. And things will be hard to argue with today as we are doing just such a thing with a deep dive into channeling with Dr. Helene Wabe. She's the Director of Research at the Institute of Noetic Sciences and an Adjunct Assistant Professor in the Department of Neurology at Oregon Health and Science University. Dr. Wabe completed her undergraduate degree at the University of California, Berkeley in Anthropology and Pre-Medicine. She obtained her clinical doctorate at the National University of Natural Medicine. She obtained her master's of clinical research from Oregon Health and Science University. And she also completed two postdoctoral research fellowships. Dr. Wabe is the author of some 90-plus peer-reviewed publications and the new book, The Science of Channeling, Why You Should Trust Your Intuition and the Force That Connects Us All. She couples this respectable and impressive academic education with the lived experience of being a channeler who comes from a long line of channelers, and it makes for a very interesting crossroads. So let's get into it. A professional paranormal investigator, academic of the edges, and teacher of channeling, Dr. Helene Wabe, welcome to the higher side. Thank you so much. It's wonderful to be here with you today. I'm looking forward to connecting about this exciting topic of channeling. Yes, this is a real pleasure. I am a big fan of the work that goes on at the Institute of Noetic Sciences. Dr. Dean Radin is still considered one of my favorite interviews we've done around here. And so I try to stay plugged into any new books coming from the IONS researchers. So 
when I saw the science of channeling, I knew it was going to be a good fit. Having someone as credentialed as you applying their talents to this subject is just really exciting. But as I kind of said in the intro there, it seems like you have a personal interest in investigating something like channeling, right? That's right. I have a personal background in it that I kept kind of hidden in terms of my academic career, but I'm, you know, what you might call a sensitive. I, as a child, would feel things that maybe others might not feel, feel other people's emotions, spaces felt unique to me. And when I was 10 years old, my mother actually took me to my grandparents' house to what they called meetings. And imagine a room with about 30 people sitting in it around in a circle. And on one side was my uncle who was doing something called trance channeling. And I looked at him and it was like it wasn't him. He was speaking in a completely different voice. He had different mannerisms. The topics he was talking about was nothing he would normally say in his everyday life. And these meetings actually happened weekly. So that was my introduction into this esoteric world of trance channeling. My mother is a trance channeler, my uncle, my grandmother, and every member of my mother's family has some sort of channeling ability, whether it's trance channeling or something else. So I grew up with this deep respect, if you will, for the esoteric and these experiences that go beyond our traditional five senses. Simultaneously, I was really interested in mind-body connection and how our mind influences our physical body and health and healing. And so that was my path to become a clinical doctor and see patients and eventually getting lured back into research, which I was really excited to get into clinical research and attempt to feed my curiosity about how these things worked. And I ended up at Oregon Health and Science University doing mindfulness meditation research. I had a study funded by the National Institutes of Health looking at combat veterans with post-traumatic stress disorder and how mindfulness meditation worked with them. And through that work, I was invited to go to the Institute of Noetic Sciences, or IONS, for this uh, workshop they were doing with meditation researchers. And the question was, what's missing from our Western research around meditation? There are so many other things that people aren't really talking about, like these transcendent or oneness experiences or spiritual aspects to meditation that may have been from the origins of meditation in the East, but when it was brought to the West, it kind of got secularized. So I was invited to that work group. We published a great paper that's come out of that. And I was exposed to ions and was completely blown away at the courage that they had to ask these questions, fringe questions, if you will, compared to regular academic research that people weren't asking, and I just really wanted to be a part of that. So fast forward, you know, it's been six years now, unbelievably, 
I'm now in a place where I can bring this personal background and apply my research training to it. So when I got to IONS, I got really excited about building on the work they've already done and others have done to create this IONS channeling research program. And that's where we ask, we're asking questions, important questions about channeling and using the scientific rigorous methods to attempt to answer them. And I'm sure we can go into that in a lot more detail, but that's a bit about my story of how I ended up here today talking to you about this topic. I love it. Quite a ride you've been on. And I wanted to read this quote where you summarize your family's views on their trans channeling. You write, my grandfather considered it his life's work to unravel our spiritual selves and examine what happens to us after we die. He wrote a book called Life After Death based on his research and understandings. Growing up in this atmosphere, I learned that my family members believed several things about trans-channeling. Their trans-channeling was consensual. They could say no or stop it at any time. They set intentions for only positive, high-level beings to come through the channeler. They were guarded by spirit guides. The guides were gatekeepers and directed which beings came in. This spirit guide team's sole purpose was to guide their assigned human to wake them up to their true self and path of their higher selves choosing, envisioning themselves surrounded by white light and pure loving intentions acts as protection. This ensures that no malevolent energy or beings could harm them. This came with the assumption that some beings were of lower vibrations who did not have positive intentions that potentially could hurt them. And that's a pretty good framework for how I think a lot of people think about channeling. Would you say that you found that to be consistent among the channelers you worked with and studied outside of your family? Yes. So those descriptions are really focused on trance channeling, which is a type of channeling. I want to back up a little bit and just share a little bit about my definition of the general term channeling. So I use kind of a broader definition that is the process of revealing information and energy not limited by our conventional notions of time and space, and that it can appear receptive and also expressive. And so this umbrella term encompasses a wide variety of channeling phenomenon like intuition, gut hunches, precognition or knowing the future, clairvoyance or seeing beyond our physical eyes, also known as remote viewing. And then the more rare experiences, I think, are things like mediumship and trans channeling. So I just want to make that distinction between the broader term of channeling, which includes all those various types, and trans channeling. And trans channeling, the channeler believes that their body is essentially used as a vehicle for a non-physical being to speak through them. And so what I observed at my grandparents' house was trans channeling. And those bullet points that you laid out are related to that phenomenon in general. So back to your question now. So the research studies that I've done with trans channelers 
have aligned with those bullet points that I lived with as a child and growing up. And, you know, I was so kind of isolated in my personal experience for fear of sharing with others. So I actually had no clue that parapsychology has been studying this for 150 years. I had no clue about the spiritualist communities in the U.S. and England and Europe. And now, the more I learn about the spiritualist communities, it's very highly resonate with what I was raised with, the beliefs that my family had and taught me about this phenomenon. The trans channelers, we've done, you know, focus groups and laboratory studies and the channeled messages that come through and the conversations with the channelers themselves also really line up with those bullet points that you shared. Hmm. Right on. That's good to know. And so you end up organizing the IONS Channeling Research Program, just a very cool thing to have on your resume. What would you say were some of your most ambitious or fruitful experiments or sessions in this overall program? One of the things that we're curious about is how channeling works. And we don't really know how it works. And we're trying to explore that. So one thing we did for that focus group that I mentioned with trance channelers, it was over a few days. We had five trance channelers and we had multiple sessions over those three days. And what we did was we put something called a random number generator in the corner of the living room to see if it would detect shifts in the environment during our channeling sessions versus the non-channeling sessions. So just to describe this device in a little bit more detail, we have a version of these random number generators called quantum noise generators. So essentially it's just continuously spitting out random noise, random data. And there's nothing that should really allow that to deviate from the randomness. And so, you know, you mentioned Dean Radin. He's done many different studies on this and researchers for decades have done this in the lab where they ask people to direct their intention towards these devices and see if the data becomes less or more random. We also see this in field experiments like at Burning Man or there's the Global Consciousness Project run by the Princeton Engineering and Anomalies Research Lab by Roger Nelson that has these devices all over the world. So these devices have been used for a number of different types of consciousness experiments. So we had these in the corner of the room and it had 16 channels. So 16 channels of random noise being spit out. And we compared that data when we were sitting in the living room doing channeling sessions versus sitting in the living room not channeling. And when we looked at that data and we looked at the shift from randomness, we saw that there were significant differences between the two conditions. 
during the channeling, there was increased order, meaning that there was less randomness in the data when people were channeling versus not channeling. And we saw this when we compared the data across the 16 channels, which you might think of changes in space, and also within the channel. So over time in the data of that channel, which you might think of shifts in time. And so the take-home message of that results of that study was that there was this idea that perhaps there's an increased coherence in space and time during channeling versus not. So why I brought this study up when you asked about, you know, my most interesting findings, this was so incredible and wonderful for me because I can feel the shift in the environment when I'm in the room with them, whether we're channeling or not channeling. So to have an objective measurement device be able to actually perceive that as well was quite remarkable. So this was one study we're excited to continue using this device. We actually did it for an energy medicine study where we saw shifts again towards increased coherence during energy medicine healing sessions compared to non-healing sessions. And we continue to use these quantum noise generators in various other studies around consciousness. Yes, that is really interesting stuff. And I've listened to several interviews you've given as well as read the book. And I've heard you talk about, I think it was the energy medicine study where you have these people engaged in the activity and at least one of them was a seer who saw beings come into the room and I guess tinker with people a little bit. And of course, not all channelers are seers, but man, it would be really interesting to get a group of seers and then see if their observations match up objectively or not. I mean, I could see it going either way to tell you the truth with so many different sources for the information. People think it comes from their higher self, from God, from angels and other beings. So even people who have this ability, they still aren't sure where it comes from. I wonder if that translates to their actual like second sight, I guess we could call it. But that is really interesting that one person in the room had that ability and did notice something. Is that right? That's right. So we published the results of that study, I guess it was last year now, and we had almost 200 patients who had hand and wrist pain, and they were treated by 17 energy medicine practitioners from various types of energy medicine lineages, if you will, Reiki and shamanic and intuitive, etc. So 17 different healers, almost 200 different participants, they gave a 30-minute session. So there was one clairvoyant seer who was present for all of those sessions in the electromagnetically shielded chamber where these sessions were happening. And she took notes during the sessions about what she perceived was going on with her external sight, like actually seeing it with her channeling eyes, if you will, and also mental images in her mind. And we did a qualitative analysis of 
all of her writing and came up with some really fascinating findings. We considered that an exploratory study, but some of the themes that came up were these beings, like you mentioned, that she was perceiving in the room that were helping the process, you know, various ways that the energy was moving to clear blockages, various ways that there was energy moving into the participants' energy field. So we've published the results on that, so you can find that on our website. But the major criticism of that case study was that it was just one seer. So it was just the filter of her seeing, if you will. So as a next step, like you mentioned, we're like, what if we got a bunch of seers to do this? So we actually just finished the follow-up study of this. And we had 40 sessions, so 40 participants, received a 30-minute session from Reiki masters. And instead of having one seer in the room, we had six seers in the room, and they were all observing the sessions. And we collected their observations in a number of ways. We had them do a checklist of, you know, review of symptoms of the participant. So what was going on in there? endocrine system, their nervous system, their circulatory system. So they filled out a checklist. And then during the sessions, they actually drew on this stock figure of a human, kind of drew the way they perceived the energy moving during the actual session. We had video cameras recording everything that they were drawing. And then after the session, they had some time to write out with words what they saw during the session. So we're very, very deep into the analysis of this work now. I've gone through and reviewed, I think it's about half the drawing pages, and it's quite remarkable to see the similarities of what the seers were actually drawing. And some of them are quite unique, you know, like maybe seeing like a symbol, like one session, like four out of the six seers drew like a bunny rabbit. And it's like, why would they draw that? It was quite (laughs) incredible. So the results for this obviously are not completely done yet, but we're excited to be able to see if these can validate in some way the ways that seers see in terms of the similarities between them and also learn about the differences and you know, perhaps the way one seer sees is a little bit different, but the meaning that they ascribe to it could be the similar. So I haven't looked at the written words for what that bunny means, but what if all of them put the same meaning as well? We also pulled out all the symbols from the drawings and the writings and emailed it to the participants and said, hey, do these symbols mean anything to you and had them respond to that. And those results have been quite fascinating too. So I'm really excited to see what this study will reveal in terms of clairvoyant seeing. You know, people also use this in medical intuitive capacities. And we're trying to raise some funding now so we can do a study that's more clinically oriented in hospitals to be able to use medical intuitives 
which is, I think, another way of saying a seer, clairvoyant seer, because they're seeing physically into the body what's going on and to be able to use those in a clinical setting. These sort of practical applications of our non-local consciousness, I think, is really what's going to move this field forward in a major way. Yes, I totally agree. And what great timing to ask you about this and have this interview today after actually finishing that study that I just think is mind-blowing. I mean, witnesses to pretty mundane situations still have a decent amount of variance to their reporting of events. So I would expect that to also carry over into something so strange and seemingly subjective, but that is really fascinating. And, you know, my primary interest in channeling is probably intel into the spirit world. I imagine it as if you were to go back to before we had cross-continental travel on the planet, but there was an open phone line. And I just imagine people picking it up and asking, so what's it like over there? I've never been there. And, you know, if I had this strong connection to some kind of being, that is primarily what I would want to know. What is the spirit world like? How do you operate in it? Are you outside of time and space entirely? Do you get bored? You know, can you help us get a handle on any of these questions, given how embedded you've been in these kinds of things? This is such a huge and pivotal topic, obviously, as humans, you know, one common thing that we all have is that we're going to die, we're going to leave this physical body. And so, of course, what happens to us after that happens is a topic of great interest to all <laughs> of humanity. We also know what our spiritual traditions teach us around that. Today in the Western world, people are less religious you know, they call themselves spiritual, but not religious. So, you know, we can certainly look at what religions teach us. We can also look at what people actually believe happens to them after they pass. We finished a survey recently where we asked these exact questions. What do you think happens to you after you die? And what part of you actually survives? So in the parapsychology community, there's this huge debate over, is it actually survival? Like, does the Helene that is me in this moment with my personality and my memories and my goals and intentions actually survive intact after my physical body passes? Or is it some sort of less personal survival where it's just like this transcendent oneness state of awareness without the identity or personality or memories? So there's one aspect of exploring this survival of our consciousness after physical death. We also asked people, you know, what they think happens. Like, what do they actually do? Where do they go? And in terms of the results of that survey, we found that I think it was about 95% of the people we polled believed in some type of survival of consciousness. In terms of where they went, the highest rated were 
going to some sort of afterlife living or reincarnation in some form. There are also some answers about coming back to Earth and, you know, supporting people who are still on the planet. So that study is going to be published in a book that's sponsored by the Society for Psychical Research about is there life after death. So I think one of the best books that sums this up from a scientific lens was by David Fontana. He wrote an incredible book that I'm blanking the title on. I think it's actually just called Is There Life After Death? And then he did a follow-up book that reviewed much content of channeled information and mediumistic information and looked at the commonalities between what happens after we pass. And so I would recommend the listeners to check that out if they're interested. You know, what happens immediately? You know, what do people see in terms of, you know, like the bright light that a lot of near-death experiencers talk about, these kind of transitional zones and different layers of the afterlife, different stages and layers and what happens in each of them is quite fascinating. Right, right. The only thing maybe more fascinating than what happens when we die is how we even get here in the first place. It's just such a weird mystery, this physical reality. And what do you think about the lives of beings on the other side that don't seem to be dead humans, like angels or guides or land spirits or pan? When you talk to channelers or occultists, which I sometimes do, they seem to think there's no limit to the energies and the disembodied consciousnesses that you could tap into. I'm curious what your thoughts are on things that live in the spirit world that aren't, apparently aren't, dead people of the past. Yes, when we survey channelers about the source of their information, So we've done this for trans channelers and mediums and also for people who have more general channeling experiences. And, you know, the mediums and the trans channelers are more likely to choose that their sources are deceased humans, but also other multidimensional beings, what they might call off-world allies, also group beings, you know, that they believe is a group of discarnate beings that have a spokesperson that's being channeled through them. Similar to what your listeners, you said your listeners hear about, we also hear about that as well through our research. When we did our Mount Shasta focus group with our five trans channelers, there were 21 different supposed beings that were coming through. So when the channeler would go into their trance state and would begin speaking, you know, we'd say, okay, who are you? Where are you from? And there were 21 different beings that were supposedly coming through them from multiple different star systems also. So, you know, it's interesting when you ask me this question, because I can answer it with my scientist hat on, and I can say, You know, we really, with the tools we have right now, we can't prove that 
definitively in any way what the source actually is. So that's my answer from a scientific lens, right? And I look forward to continuing this work so that we can develop tools to see if we can actually verify this in some way. But right now, there's really no way to verify it. Mm -hmm. Middle ground is I invite people because people always ask me, you know, is this real? Is this not real? Can I actually believe whether it's real or not real? And the advice that I give them is to attempt as best they can to be in a place of neutrality and equanimity around it, neither believing nor disbelieving, but being more focused on the message itself to see if it resonates with them and can support them in their daily lives in some way. And to not let our ego get stuck on the actual, oh, this is Archangel Michael, or oh, this is Mary Magdalene, or oh, this is an alien, etc. To not get stuck on that. So then personally, you know, I don't know how many channeling sessions I've experienced in my life. And with my relatives, I have had my own deceased relatives supposedly come through and share things with me that no one else knew. My personal experience of it has been so incredibly profound and there's no motivation for my relative. Like they aren't making any money off of it. There's like no motivation for them to fake it. And there's such stark differences in the different personalities that are coming through that I can't come up with another explanation other than there's some likely different energetic being that is communicating in this way somehow. And in terms of, you know, not just deceased humans, I think it's very arrogant to think that we are the only sentient beings in the universe and that it completely makes sense to me that there would be other beings elsewhere in the world and the likelihood that they are more advanced than us and have tapped into the ability to communicate through their consciousness in a non-local way is kind of a no-brainer in my, in my <laughs> personal perspective. Yeah. So I agree with that. If we can project our consciousness out and there's anything else out there on another physical planet, you would assume it has the same ability and so maybe that's how consciousness to consciousness, we get linked up sometimes. And it's just a very strange world. But yes, as you mentioned, that Mount Shasta group, they talk about being tapped into beings and they ask them where these beings are from. They say the Pleiades, Sirius, Arcturus, Orion, as you mentioned, 21 or so different places. It is so wild. I guess once you get out of your own way, you really start to realize that there's a, a giant soup out there of consciousnesses floating around. And if you have kind of like an animist worldview that all things are conscious, you could extend that to animals, possibly plants, maybe even crystals, maybe even stars. It, it gets quite weird. <laughs> it does. It's incredible. I mean, one of the remarkable things that was shared in that Mount Shasta group and the transcripts are available for people through the research 
avenues was one of the channelers was talking about the consciousness of, I think it was, I don't know if it was photons or electrons, and they were talking about this, you know, physics experiment and the colliders. And they're like, if only the physicists knew that these you know, electrons have consciousness and they're trying to blast them apart. Mm. It was quite fascinating to hear that. And then, you know, what do you do with that? I can't imagine going to CERN and saying, you need to connect with the consciousness (laughs) of these, these beings, which is quite amazing. The other thing personally that has, you know, at the end of that weekend, I was just so blown away by the profundity of it all. And it makes my petty worries of my daily life just really go away. You know, it's like when you take that much broader view of our universe, I think it's very humbling. And it also allows me to be more focused, I think, on higher goals and values in my life than getting worried about these small details. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Wise words. And I did have a, a quote here about the Mount Shasta group where you say, some of these communicators described what their worlds were like. Our world feels like love, celebration, upliftment, and the constant eagerness to learn and teach. They described their body as similar to a star, like a vibration with balanced masculine and feminine aspects. They said they communicate with each other telepathically, but not with words. They use packets of information or blocks of thought. And in the future, humans will apparently be able to see these non-physical beings with our physical eyes. And that is quite provocative. Can you tell us any more particularly about that last part? Why would we be able to see them in the future and how long do we have to wait? I know that's a great question. That's often asked. And when people are always want to know that when their supposed extraterrestrial intelligence is coming through too, it's like, okay, well, if you're all around and you're wanting to support humanity, then why aren't you showing up. Exactly. And the channeled answers that I get is, you know, soon, soon. But of course, I believe their multidimensional timing is different than human time, human linear time. So I don't know when that soon will be. But there's this perspective that humanity's not quite ready as a whole for that to happen. And you may have interviewed others or heard about various contact experiences that people all over the planet are having, and that the people who are perhaps more open and curious and ready to have those experiences are, but that there's not a, you know, spaceship landing on the lawn of the White House because that sort of very front-facing reality of it would be too overwhelming for many people on the planet and would inspire fear and people going into their fight or flight defensive posture that could create damage. And so the idea is that until all of humanity is in a space where they won't go into that and create violence and damage 
to humanity and perhaps the visitors that it's not going to happen in such an open way. But we do hear so much from various people about having direct experiences of this. One of the channelers from the Mount Shasta group actually led groups where they would go and meditate near Mount Shasta with the intention of inviting extraterrestrial intelligences to come show them some sign. And they would often have various, I know they're not called UFOs anymore, unidentified (laughs) aerial objects or something is the new acronym that they would see those. And I know that there's groups around the world that are doing similar things. So it's like this grassroots direct experience, if you will, making it into a, seeing it, perhaps we can have it be a reality for the whole world, but not quite yet. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. These reasons that you just gave for why they aren't fully helping us out yet are quite common, hear them all the time. And also that notion of, well, it's coming soon. We're going to raise the vibration of love and light, and we're all going to have a big Burning Man party cross-dimensionally or something like that (laughs) is what it starts to sound like. But it doesn't feel soon to me when I look at like kind of what drives most people's feelings about life. I mean, our education system certainly isn't preparing them for this kind of reality. Our culture dismisses it and laughs at it. And our media is incredibly fear-based and just, especially over the last year and a half, I mean, not to talk about that whole thing, but fear is at an all-time high. It doesn't seem like the mechanisms that influence people the most are at all turning towards pushing them towards love and light. It seems like the things that we're all tapped into in our general culture are pushing more and more fear. And maybe there's a breaking point. I guess we could hope for that, that eventually it goes so far, it comes out the other side. But I don't know. It just seems strange. I wonder if there ever was a time where we were in the right frequency of love and vibration where things were more apparent to us. We have these old legends and myths of fairies and elves and Kelpies and people seeing little sprites or elementals or forest spirits. It's possible, perhaps, that maybe that frequency vibration that we're longing for actually did overlap with a section of humanity's past. What do you think about that? Yeah, I think that that's likely true. I mean, there's examples of channeling phenomenon throughout recorded history. And we also see hieroglyphs in Egypt of angels visiting and people with wings and all these unique things. So, and you you look at shamanistic traditions, many many indigenous world views hold this vision of a more holistic, interconnected reality, and it's almost like you know through the industrial age and technology rising, it was suppressed and diminished. And right now, we're in this very unique era, if you will, because we're straddling two paradigms. The materialistic paradigm through science that 
supposes that the only thing that is real is material things, right? That the nature of reality is very physical and that non-physical is not part of our worldview. And so that's why I think we get so much pushback and taboo around channeling phenomenon is because there's no explanation for how telepathy could work or how we could possibly know the future if time is linear and we're separated by space. And so we are moving into a post-materialistic paradigm where we see that actually consciousness is non-local and can act in non-local ways. And what I mean by that is it can act beyond time and space. You know, we can have telepathy experiments where we see instantaneous results. We see experiments where our intention affects things, you know, thousands of miles away instantaneously. So when we did this genetic study where we looked at the genetics of people who were highly psychic compared to controls, and we found one area of the DNA in the non-coding region of chromosome 7 that all of the psychics had and seven of the nine controls had. And what was so fascinating about this was that it was the original version of that code and the controls had a mutated version. So the psychics had this original version of this DNA. And when we looked at the expression of that portion in the general population in relation to the spread of Christianity, we saw that it was weeded out, if you will, in countries where Christianity was stronger. And of course, we know what happened with persecution of witches, etc. Anyone who had these type of abilities were persecuted. The other thing we noticed was that the rise in technology also weeded out this original form. And so, you know, this was also a pilot study, but it really supports this notion that channeling is the way I'm describing it is an innate capacity of all humans and that pressures from various pieces like technology, etc., have pressurized our genetics to move away from that, if you will. So I do believe that humans have this innate capacity that we've likely had it through time. Evolutionarily, it makes sense that we would perceive beyond our five senses and that that would ensure our survival. If we could sense when the lion was coming or when there was some danger that was approaching us, that it would support us to thrive. So I still hold to that in our research and our premise at IONS that we all have this innate capacity to access this inner knowing, these channeling phenomenon, and support the work to discover exactly how that works, what it looks like, and how we can really use it in our daily lives. Mm. So many great things to chew on there. I think there is a real strong 
connection between technology and consciousness that shouldn't be overlooked. I mean, how many of us still remember phone numbers from when we were a kid of the guy down the street because we needed to know it to contact that guy? Whereas today, you know, if you ask me my wife's phone number, it's a 50-50 shot on if I'll get it (laughs) right away without having to look it up. And it's just like, yeah, that is a effect on the mind that has to do with technology. And then with social media, it's getting even crazier how it's affecting the development of minds. And where is the line between what we can actually study in the materialist paradigm about the mind and happiness levels and emotional states and memory, and then also the aspects of mind and consciousness that they don't even recognize exist and like definitely aren't looking at how those things are affected. And I do have some pretty out there questions for you about technology and channeling that we might get to, but I didn't want to end this first hour without getting into that question of are there defining characteristics of someone who channels easily and also how we can increase our own channeling potency for people who are listening And they're like, yeah, I think this exists. How do I get engaged with it? What have you found to be true in those regards? How would you help someone who's thinking about taking the leap? There's a number of ways that we can do that. So one is to meditate. So meditation is actually one of the strongest predictors we've found so far in people who have channeling experiences. People who meditate do better in the laboratory on laboratory tasks, and they also have channeling experiences during meditation. So meditation is one. Another one is belief. So paranormal belief or belief that you actually can do this is also a strong predictor to having those experiences. Another one is openness to experience and just being open and aware of channeling and your own experience of those phenomenon also supports that effort. In my work with people and hearing their stories, intention also plays a very strong role. And we know from the psychokinesis studies that Dean Radin and others have done that our intention does matter. And where we direct our intention makes a difference. So if someone believes, if they have some mental training to work with their thoughts and their mind and their openness to the experience, there's no reason why they couldn't learn to channel in some way. I've spoken to a number of different teachers who teach telepathy, psychokinesis, trans channeling, and they also believe that they can teach anyone to do so doesn't mean that they're all going to be excellent. It's kind of like saying, and everyone can learn how to play basketball, but that doesn't mean everyone's going to be a professional NBA player. (laughs) So everyone can learn how to channel at some level in some form. And using that clear intention, nurturing their practice of it will go a long way for them to experience it. Mm -hmm. Well said. And I guess what we would call occult practices, they've been so demonized as scary and dangerous. And of course, we're talking about kind of a a quarantined type of channeling where you do bring in protection and all that kind of stuff. 
So like we're talking about some safe stuff, but it's interesting that you find there's a lot of positive effects on people's well-being when they do incorporate this into their life. I think that might surprise some people. That's right. In all of the surveys we've done and all the studies I've read that others have done, people for the most part have positive impact from having channeling experiences in their lives. And this is from, you know, people who have general intuition all the way to mediums and trance channelers. Their quality of life improves. They're well adjusted. They're highly functioning. It brings meaning and often purpose to their daily lives to have these channeling experiences. You mentioned the occult and the negative pieces. I do want to give the caveat that in some cases, and these are rare, people do have negative experiences where the channeling happens too often. It's really strong. It disrupts their daily life. They feel a negative emotions from it. And so my advice, if any listeners are experiencing that or know anyone who is, to advise them to reach out and get help and get mental health support or spiritual advisor support to support them with that. So healthful, normative channeling experiences should be a positive aspect in people's lives. I also want to touch on this piece of fear because you mentioned that in terms of our culture and the story, kind of the dominant story that we see in the media. And fear is such a powerful force to shut down our curiosity. It physiologically literally changes our body. We go into our in our autonomic nervous system, it triggers our sympathetic nervous system, which puts us in this fight or flight state. When you're in that state, it shuts down your prefrontal cortex, which is our higher mind of discernment and critical thinking and creative problem solving and puts our mind into this very emotional, fear, defensive, survival mode. And when you're in that mode, it's hard to see a big picture. It's hard to be compassionate for other people around you. And it really creates this sort of us, them and fleeing from the danger energy. So I feel like this story of fear hinders us as individuals and as a culture physically because it affects our nervous system, it suppresses our immune system, emotionally because it just creates this separation and fear and anxiety in people. And the sequelae of that, we just are seeing it rampant around our in our world right now. So people might think it's very naive of me to say, shift your story. How can you find a way to be in a love-based, compassionate state that, you know, people might criticize me and say, oh, that's just new age woo-woo talk. And yet when you're in that state, it improves your quality of life. It boosts your immune system. You are able to think more clearly, be more critical, 
be more creative and it empowers you to actually cooperate and work with others instead of getting into this divisive us them fighting for your survival. So I think this is a really important message to get out to people and that channeling supports that because it inspires us to be empowered from within, from an internal knowledge source, rather than always looking outside of ourselves for the answers. And today, unfortunately, the outside of ourselves is full of the story of fear, which is not very supportive. Yes. Cheers to all that. I'm so glad you said what you said, because I've had similar thoughts when I see not to get too specific into everything going on, but so occasionally you'll see someone out there who's wearing goggles, masks, gloves, and carrying hand sanitizer on their hip or something like that. And I will just think, I understand that you want to protect yourself and be safe, but what kind of mental state are you in to be going to those lengths, like the furthest out lengths? And the irony is that what you need to maybe do is work on your mental state if you want to improve your immune system and improve your chances of being in good health because it's not all about the physical things you can do. It's also about thinking in the, in the right way. Yes, thinking in the right way. And, you know, I don't know why our media is so focused on the negative and fear. I mean, maybe that sells gets higher rankings or whatever. But, you know, what's not present in our conversations is, hey, how do I exercise more easily? How do I (laughs) eat better? How do I, you know, just these very basic, simple self-care that is like massive amounts of evidence that supports our health and well-being. Instead of, you know, okay, how do I live in a hazmat suit to protect myself? It's like, what are the other things I can do to protect myself so that my body is in homeostasis, is in this really optimal functioning balance between all of my body systems, including the mental, emotional, that supports me in being safe when I am exposed to any pathogens that are around me. And I'm not saying that that's the only answer, but what I'm highlighting is that conversation is like pretty much completely missing from the dominant storytelling in our media. Mm -hmm. Well said. Totally agree. And before we run out of time, I also just wanted to see if you could give us an overview of what some of the other scientists and staff at IONS are studying and working on, because I think it's a really great organization and funding the things that we want to expand in the world has never seemed more important. If people did decide to become members or donate to IONS, what sort of things are they supporting? Thank you. That's a great opportunity. We have a number of research programs. One is called the IONS Discovery Lab, and that's where we are looking at our guiding premise that we are all interconnected and that embodying that allows us to access information and energy from beyond time and space and profoundly amplifies transformation, well-being, and innovation. 
So we look at the different factors of that before and after personal workshops, various workshops, sound healing, meditation, etc. If you have an offering that you offer, we can actually study that by giving your participants a survey before and after the workshops to give you a report. And then that goes into a larger database to help us understand the relationships between those three factors, interconnectedness, channeling, and well-being. The second larger research program we call IONS X, and that's really about a lot of what we've been talking about today, our intention affecting the physical world and the practical applications of that. So Dean Radin, our chief scientist, is spearheading those efforts, and we have a number of different studies looking at intention affecting the physical world. We also have the IONS Channeling Research Program, which we talked a lot about today. We have Arno DeLorme, who is a world-renowned neuroscientist, EEG specialist that is focused on mediumship studies and how to verify those as part of the channeling research program. We have our molecular biologist, Garrett Yount, who is working on the genetics of psychic ability and lucid dreaming and how we can influence health and healing through lucid dreaming. And then we also have Lauren Carpenter, who is actually a co-founder of Pixar and won an Academy Award for his computer science animation. And he's our maker and is supporting our work around developing devices that can measure big C consciousness, measure perhaps these multidimensional beings in different ways. And then finally, we have our Noetic Signature Program, which is kind of couched in our channeling program. And I've alluded to this, but the Noetic Signature is a little bit like a Noetic Myers-Briggs. So we believe everyone has the innate capacity to tap in in the way we've talked about, but that the way it shows up for people is unique to them. So we've developed an inventory that people can take, and then they get a report that shows where they lie on 12 different characteristics of channeling experiences. And then they can use that information to nurture and support their capacities, perhaps take classes that we offer ourselves, IONS does, or with our partners, and explore their noetic signature and how that can help them in their daily lives. So that's a brief overview. We're really about this handshake between science and direct experience. And with both of those, we can bring this work forward into the world. Yeah, yeah, really great stuff. And that survey sounds like one I should definitely take to find the right tools for, uh, I guess, Everybody has learning styles. You would think that maybe you have channeling styles too. So that's take right. a survey, exactly. learn about it. Mm-hmm. I love it. Very cool. And as for yourself, of course, the new book is called The Science of Channeling. I don't know if there's a particular place that is most advantageous for people to get the book. Books are pretty easy to get, but maybe you have some information there. Or maybe there's anything else that the audience should know. Uh, any links to give them? Anything like that? 
I invite everyone to go to our website, noetic.org. Please get hooked into our email list so you can learn about all the studies and experience offerings we have. On our website, you'll find all of our peer-reviewed publications. You'll find blogs and webinars that are free to our community so that you can learn more about this work and perhaps even participate in some of our studies. The book is available at all your normal sources, Amazon, Bookstore, Barnes & Noble, and I hope that you find it enlightening in terms of offering you a big picture resource guide to come out of the channeling closet if you are (laughs) in there and feel comfortable having conversations about this with other people, knowing that you are truly, truly not alone and that there is a huge wealth of information supporting these as real, in quote, phenomenon, and that we can just continue this exciting exploration into the nuances of how it works and who can do it and how and how we can really just integrate it into our lives to help us every day. Mm. Well said. Well said. <laughs> <What> <laughs> Thank you. Great way to end. So this has been a real pleasure. You have such an impressive resume and we're lucky to have you advancing such an important and underdeveloped aspect of life. Thanks for taking the time to talk to me and keep up the great work. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Yes, people, Dr. Wabe for the win. What a unique and impressive background from the personal to the professional to merging both in a very unique and creative way. It seems pretty clear that she's right where she should be with ions and doing what she seems destined to do. Use the language and processes of science to bring people back to a practice that might be as ancient as humanity itself. But you have to approach people where they are, and who knows how many academics and professionals will take a look at her work out of curiosity and in turn start accepting channeling and other psi effects and consciousness as all very real. When we talk about coming out the other side of where we are now into the dominant of wider inclusion and this feeling that many people have that materialism will have nowhere to go but to fizzle out as many of the sacred cows of the Western world fall by the wayside, it shows like this that make me think that is actually happening. It's books like hers coming out in this time, watching ions grow, watching anthroposophist doctors rise in prominence and natural paths, It all makes me think that these are the people changing the world. It's like each new book, each new voice I learn about, it's all drops in the bucket. Dean Radin's Magic is Real, Dr. Wabe's Science of Channeling, Lynn McTaggart's Power of Eight, Dr. Pollock's Fourth Phase of Water, Dr. Cowan's Cancer and the New Biology of Water and Human Heart, Cosmic Heart. Each one is another drop of water in the bucket, and eventually it will overflow. And I'm actually quite jazzed up and honored and humbled to even be a small part of that. And I'm learning right along with you guys, honestly. I'll never be the scientist or the researcher who is doing the actual work, 
But I have built a place where intelligent, open-minded people who are attracted to alternative models can learn about them and see what I think is a pretty high-level case get made for them and then take it forward as part of their own model and it all moves the needle. It all affects the field. It all puts us ahead of the people who are so attached to the dominant of science, just to stick with Charles Fort's terminology, because when you are attached to anything that you start to see flaws in, religions, political parties, models for how reality works, it can be a difficult thing to process for a lot of people. So while other folks try to wrap their heads around these changes, we're already there. This process might even take a decade or so, but we're on a pretty accelerated track here at THC. And it seems like the next decade is going to have so many challenges, I'm just happy that for a lot of us, the collapsing of our conception of reality itself isn't going to be layered on top of everything else. We can at least rest easy there, right? Even if you haven't had a lot of these things like magic and channeling and spirits and energy healing proven to you on a personal basis, just being open to these things and prepared for that confirmation makes it a lot easier to process if it does come along. Take it from the guy who was a very loud, arrogant, annoying atheist until the day Salvia rubbed my face in the carpet. To wrestle with that at 35 would be a lot harder than 25, just on a base level, and then add everything going on and the stress and tension people are feeling today. Do you really want to have no sound footing at all? Feels like that would be a lot. It's good for you to have a position you hold dear shattered completely. It makes you a lot more humble. It makes you second guess things before you mouth off. And it makes you less judgmental of other people's worldviews and positions on things. At least those are the effects it had on me. And I'm sure I'm not alone. So yeah, I really appreciate the work she does and everyone at IONS. It's one of the few groups that I am a contributing member slash donor to. I hope this show can continue to have a symbiotic relationship with them. I know they have a lot more coming out, and I'd be happy to do what I do and help them get the word out and in time. I don't think it's going too far to say, build out the new model, as the current one shows its age and its inaccuracies. I'm just saying, stay awake, be ready, you do not know the hour when the dominant of wider inclusion is coming. But as always, the first hour of this show lays the base and the second hour fills the space. We got to so much more with the extra time. You might as well sign up if you're interested in these interviews. They only get better as they go along, this week and every week. Plus, I could use a hand, but don't do it for me, do it for you. Today, we got to talk about the dominant story of fear in our media and the omission of real self-care, spirit guides and tapping into your team, technology and ideas from the other side, associated remote viewing, psi effects and channeling outside of the Western bubble, channeling information about our past or future, principles of intention and manifestation, and the connection between Sir Francis Bacon and Micro. PK. Figure that one out if you didn't hear the second hour. 
<sighs> but action-packed and commercial-free as always, thanks to the plus people out there who make it all possible. And big thanks again to our guest, Dr. Helene Wabe, a definite light in the darkness. I had a good time. If you're still here, I assume you did too. But that does it for this one. I'm getting out of here. I've done my part. Your move, consciousness contradictors, channeling challengers, and arrogant agents of the materialist model. Your fucking move.